0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 192, and I'm your host, Nick Ortega. Why more and more states are pushing for year-round school and why the ransomware attacks like the one that hit the Colonial Pipeline is nothing new for school districts. Stay with us. Last Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply your community. This week, our guest tells us why emotion is so crucial to history education. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am fantastic downhill stretch to the end of the school year. I know. It seems like it's gone by fairly quickly, but I'm sure for those actually in the classroom, I am not. Oh, no. It has been a long <laughs> it's, year. It's been
1: very long and slow and drawn out and um, a very interesting experience going down in the books. But um, I won't complain, but I won't ever forget.
0: <sighs> I know. It is, th- hopefully, we can look back on this and... In- It'll just be like, remember twenty twenty slash twenty twenty one and we'll never have anything like this again.
1: Um, I did not document or journal in any way. and in retrospect, I wish I had. So those that are documenting, I hope that you know, ten years from now, they turn around and share those experiences and those thoughts. Um, from school closure and returning back to, you know, physically being in the building to um, teaching uh, face-to-face and virtually. And I just, you know, I I, I will be very inclined. I really want to just hear some some students when they become adults, you know what I'm saying? Right. And 10 years from now, come back and talk about their middle school elementary experiences. It's going to be something else.
0: You know, and I hear you and I agree, like they're going to have these stories but at the same time. I kind of ask my kids about it. And they just seem so unfazed. And we're the ones that I feel like are. I
1: think they're unfazed right now, but as they get into adulthood and education may actually truly take the shift and change that it needs because of this pandemic, they will be the children to remember what it was like and being switched to what it is now.
0: Right. No doubt. Well, you, you said, um, you know, schools getting closer to an end for this year, um, which kind of brings me to the, my first story. Uh, for the day, and it's actually coming out of our um, next-door neighbors over in Louisiana. Apparently, their um, state superintendent of education is suggesting and pushing the Louisiana lawmakers um, to consider school, and help me out here, year-round. Not all year, but year-round, which I guess the defining characteristic is what?
1: That doesn't surprise me. Attending year-round school is um, possibly having a six- to eight-week um, term, which is, you know, 40-something days maybe, and then taking either a two- or three-week intercession. And during that intercession, many districts are discussing providing interventions or, you know, some side tutoring uh, for students to to fill gaps. Um, it's a big discussion, I think, that's going around um, all across the country. Now, you do have some states like California, they've been implementing year-round um, schooling for many, many years.
0: Yeah, and so the whole idea is not to have that Summer loss um, that often takes place. Uh, I think here in our state, we're seeing a lot of districts, I guess you can say, pilot programs like this. Um, yes. My yes. child, um, your child, or my children um, will be in those pilot programs next year. I, as a parent, I'm personally excited about it, but I think I'm one of the few. Um, I like the idea of having breaks throughout the year and not just having to fit in any vacation in that one summer window and instead having some options um when
1: i think about it it does not impact me the same way as it would impact many other people Mm -hmm. of course you know my son is um driving age he'll take himself to him from school on his intercession days you know um i know he'll be at home um He'll probably still have athletic, uh, you know, periods sometime um, during that day. But when I go back and remember when my boys were in elementary school, and my husband's job kept him away quite a bit, so everything was on me. And being an educator and at that uh, a school administrator, I don't know how I would manage. If I had elementary age children um, attending one district and then here I am in another district and we are not piloting that model. So I think that it is going to take a shift in thinking and planning for families. Um, There are a lot of people that pick professions or just do certain things around their kids being out for the summer. But at the same time, when you think about those families who have to. Their grocery bill goes up. They have to have daycare or some type of Yeah, for the summer, like this is it can turn out to be you know a huge blessing. Um, so I just I just think there's a lot of pros and cons to consider.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's human nature for all of us to look at it like how will this impact me in the life that I live right now. But I guess really the the overarching question is. Will this prevent summer loss? And and the superintendent of education in Louisiana is like, look, this is not a silver bullet, but he believes it will make a big difference. I want Christina's thoughts. I mean, does going to this model, do you think prevents children from forgetting what they learned the year before?
1: Obviously, without some research and studies conducted, I I just can only give an opinion. And what I would hope is that um, even with our school district um, where our children attend, I would hope that superintendents and administrative teams Um, conducted some research and to find out the impacts on student achievement, on attendance, on social-emotional health of students in the the states that have been doing this for a long time. And if they did conduct that research and they see a lot of positives from it, then I'm inclined to believe that it can have some type of positive impact on students. Can it completely eradicate summer loss? I don't know. But let's be clear, um, regular, consistent instruction can only help students be better. It's no different than offering, when you think about how we offer after school tutorial support in the spring, or like right now, everyone is scrambling to put together some type of effective summer program that's different from what we've done in the past. And that's going to be much more impactful in regard to trying to extend um, current grade level skills on a student before they actually move into the next grade. So when I really look at the big picture, let's take out personal preferences. Let's take out how difficult change can be for all of us year-round school probably would have a great impact on not just student achievement. I think it would probably have a good impact on the economy. I think that um, it may make people really step back and think about teacher salaries and and, and how that impacts their contractual days and how they serve in schools. I just think there's a lot to consider
0: yeah no, all all very valid points. Um, so I, I don't know from what I'm reading in the article in Louisiana while it's being pushed. looks like it may pass the house, but struggle to pass their Senate, so it's probably not going to happen, but the discussion is happening, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see like we are here in Mississippi, more and more districts kind of making that move on their own. um, so certainly worth I would watching. Have a
1: question did they consider did they survey their teachers? did they talk to their teachers and not just an electronic survey? did they have any um you know, focus groups to really talk about what this could look like and how they could accomplish it before pushing it, you know, through the legislature.
0: Yeah, it does not indicate that in the article. However, I don't want to say it didn't happen. Um, But uh, you know how things often do get pushed down from the top. I'm not going to say it definitely happened either. Uh, Another interesting story that uh, has kind of been going on outside of the world of education, but I think has at least implications into education, is this whole colonial pipeline ransomware story that has been dominating headlines. Yeah. For those that don't know, uh, this is the pipeline that apparently supplies a very large, if not the majority of uh, the oil and gasoline that gets up to the northeastern corridor and much of really the, all of the East Coast. Um, that company was attacked by um, hackers, which essentially what they do is they, they go and they take over the server Uh, for these companies and then say, hey, you have to pay us money if you want this back. Or sometimes they'll even um, hold some of that data for ransom. Like, we're going to release some embarrassing stuff if you don't pay us money. And so a negotiation, it's very organized, takes place. They believe that this particular hacker is out of Russia. Um, It doesn't really seem like it's necessarily a state-run operation, but these are just sophisticated, smart hackers that know how to hit you know, big entities and try to get money from them. And here's the thing. NPR recently did a story on these ransomware style attacks. And they're often hit cities and school districts. Usually the ransom is paid. It's just not really talked about a whole lot. I think we're seeing a lot of discussion about this one because it impacts all of us, um, not just some of us, because it may affect the price of gasoline. And, And so everyone's kind of like up in arms about this. I wanted to bring it up On this education related podcast, because this is fairly common to see happening to school districts. Um,
1: Remember, we actually did an episode where we talked about protecting student data and b- school districts being hacked
0: Yes I will link to that episode in the show notes if any- anybody wants to listen to it we had a couple experts on talking about like what school districts should be doing to protect their data from these type of attacks and I was curious you know like even during a pandemic did we see these type of attacks taking place and it turns out um, somebody was keeping tabs on it and quickly mm-hmm. um, just on their this list an increase. Has there been an increase? Well, they found 26, like, large attacks on large districts um, all within the last year. For example, Mm -hmm. uh, Baltimore County Public Schools in Maryland. Uh, The school closed uh, for 115,000 students as a ransomware attack, hit all networking systems, including the district's website, email systems, and grading system. Um, No word on really whether or not they paid the ransom there, but that just shows you. Um, If you're curious about, like, what type of money these folks often ask for. I see one in July of 2020, the university of Utah was hit with one and the school ended up paying close to a half a million dollars. Um, they actually paid through their cyber insurance provider to keep,
1: that was going to be my question. So let's be real clear to our listeners. Mm -hmm. When you say they paid up to a half a million dollars, how does that impact, um, reserve funds? How does it impact their current, you know, uh, money dedicated down from the state and from the federal government. So it's insurance and then what happens to their premiums?
0: Right. That's a fair question. And that's a university. I don't know if you know, what your large school districts, if they carry insurance on this or not, it might vary from district to district. But um, again, Fairfax County Public Schools in September of 2020, that's the largest district in Virginia. Um, They learned that they were um, subject of a ransomware attack um, conducted by the cyber crime group called Maze. The group sent a zip file of 2% of the data to claim uh, to kind of like prove like, hey, we have this stolen evidence, and we're going to release more if you don't meet our demands. So I think well, I guess really my point is this stuff is happening all over the country all the time. And I guess really the discussion needs to be like, how can we work with school districts, work, work with cities, work with, you know, important things like utilities, uh, uh, companies to say, like, how can we strengthen this? Or is, it, is well, there no way to talking
1: do it more about it, first of all?
0: I think because it doesn't affect us on an everyday basis. It's like, you know, just because Fairfax County Public Schools gets hit, it doesn't affect me down in the South. But I think that's what's been interesting with this colonial pipeline, because it affects so many people. It is now an everyday discussion. But really, it should have already been an everyday discussion, I guess, is, is really my ultimate point here.
1: And you're right about that. But isn't that how it always seems to be with education is that we get back into a corner um, before we're really ready to make a change that could have been considered an innovative idea and a problem solving um, step versus now we're, you know, trying to get out of a hole. Yeah. And I'm really concerned about smaller districts um, that may not have the resources, the talent Um, the staffing to be able to come back from something like that.
0: Well, and so the idea is you're supposed to constantly be backing up all of your information. So when they like take over your server, it's like, oh, it's okay. I got a backup copy right here and you can keep that. But what often happens too with these hackers is they are threatening to leak information that could be embarrassing or just even sensitive uh, of the, the information that you have stored. So even if you have a backup, it doesn't mean that information won't get stuck on the dark web. And, and that's why Utah says they paid um, the actual ransom. That was University of Utah. They oh, you know how happening. I
1: operate I want to know what could be embarrassing from a school district.
0: Well, and and so apparently with this colonial pipeline stuff, it's not so much the computer system that gets... Fuel from point A to point B. It is just mostly on their mostly on their business side, and so that's what's been kind of interesting. It's like it, they are seem to be worried about what could leak out on their business side uh-huh. um, from all this. So, uh, but back to your point about like school districts and small ones. I don't know that any district is really prepared to deal with sophisticated Russian hackers or any sophisticated hacker from anywhere. It's just like we you know we've computerized everything in. We haven't really come up with a plan on how to react, you know, from all these great things we get out of technology, but how to react to these type of attacks.
1: Well, I certainly think we're going to have to do a follow up to this because I I, I pose the question, why are not we talking about it more? I suspect it's going to start popping up. And, um, you know, every year we have annual administrative um, conferences and trainings. And so now I'm going to be interested to see if that is going to be a topic um, for one of the summer trainings.
0: Yeah. And I worry that, you know, I think some people say, well, the federal government needs to do more. I don't know that the federal government's capable of protecting regulated. every private company and, right. and city. And I, I mean, the smart people aren't necessarily working for the federal government. They're sometimes working for the hackers. And well, then the, you just
1: get into the big argument about more government, less government.
0: Right. And in our private companies and cities and schools, Okay, with the federal government coming in and saying, here's how to do this, like, you just run into a lot of issues. So I don't have a solution. But yes, certainly, that discussion needs to continue. And one other um, thing I want to just mention, and we're not gonna be able to dive too deep into it right now, because this is a link and a map I'm going to put in the show notes. But um, it's an interesting report I saw from the verge just released. And it's showing us who in the country doesn't have high speed internet, you know, we know that lots of our students out there don't have access to broadband internet. But this really kind of, you know, takes the mask oh, off and it. shows us where, <laughs> yeah, um, what the way the metrics of this map, it's just a picture for the most part, the way they did it was anybody who has less than 25 megabits per second, which is, you know, basically enough to be able to easily watch a movie in your home, um, you really need somewhere like 10 or so megabits per second to watch a movie in your home. But so that's kind of the the mark for, okay, this is high speed access. So anyone who doesn't have that, they mark the county in blue on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, your county was marked if you were under, I think it's 15% of the households not having broadband speed. So just for example, like where we live, and I personally have high speed internet where I live, but only 33% of the county that I live in has what they classify as broadband internet. Um, wow. And where you teach, you have 20% of the people in your county have broadband speed, which is surprisingly low. But then if yeah. you see the people who have like less than 15%, it's it's pretty eye-opening.
1: And here we have uh, just another peek to talk about equity.
0: No doubt. And, you know, I think the solutions are getting there or getting here faster than ever. Um, I mean, you go one county over from us, um, Marion County, Mississippi, it says 7% of the people in that county have what they classify as broadband internet. And then you go two That's counties over and it's 2%. Um, but oh, we wow. we know that here in Mississippi, for example, power companies are now providing high-speed internet to some of these rural areas. Um, we have what we call co-op power companies. Um, so it's good to see that that's starting to happen. I know there's been a lot of grants and stuff given to the power companies to make sure that they can help deliver um, high-speed internet to some more rural areas. And then, of course, you have Starlink, um, Elon Musk company, which has the high-speed <laughs> satellite internet.
1: Mm-hmm. But here we are in 2021, still having a discussion about people having access to high-speed internet. Can you take a look at that map and talk to me a little bit about Lawrence County?
0: I'm sorry, which county? Lawrence. So Lawrence County, um, the number is one percent using broadband speed, and and you can't see the map. So the fact that you you knew there must have been an issue there, huh?
1: Yep. And that I, I can only shake my head. Um, just when I think about students and their access as their, you know going through their school district and trying to be prepared for college and career. That is so unfair.
0: It is. It, it is absolutely unfair. And it's like, what have they been doing for the past year, or especially during what I would call the height of the lock- lockdown during 2020? Like, What type of education were they getting with 1% of the county having broadband speed?
1: I'm I'm kind of at a loss, to be honest. Yeah. Um, we're in the middle of state testing right now. And while we know that we will not receive accountability ratings, we also know our performance is still going to be analyzed and posted in newspapers and, you know, for the world to see. And we're looking at, you know, this area having 20 percent, looking at Lawrence County having one percent. But yet they're all going to be compared Um, with the state assessment data. And that's just disheartening.
0: And I just want to give some comparisons real quick. I was pulled up Los Angeles County, um, California, 65%. uh, Ventura County, 69%. You go up to Loudoun County, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., 98% um, coverage. Let's check over, like, say, in um, New York, kind of close to New York City. Westchester County, 66% looks like Nassau County 84%. So so that just kind of shows you the, the difference um in mm-hmm. terms of that broadband coverage. I you know, I don't like the idea of the the government getting in bed with another Elon Musk project. He's already got SpaceX, but uh right. if if the solution is to subsidize the hardware for this internet um, that they're providing anywhere in the country in rural areas. I mean, maybe that's what we need to do. Like, we've got to find a solution fast. It's it's only fair.
1: We've got to do something.
0: So again, I will link um, to that map um, if somebody wants to take a dive and kind of see where their county ranks around the country. That's going to do it for this part of the show. Are you ready for today's bright idea? Yes. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to tell us why emotion is so important when teaching history. Dr. Dave Newman is an assistant professor of history education at Cal Poly Pomona, and he was recently published in Social Education with his article titled, A Feeling for the Past, The Role of Emotion in History Education. Dr. Newman, welcome to class dismissed. Dismissed. Thank
2: you. I appreciate you having me on this morning.
0: Now, your article about um, this topic, about this emotion in the classroom, you actually opened it up with a moment that happened in your class where I guess you had students. It was a history methods class and they were presenting to you a topic and everything was clicking on all cylinders, right? But kind of share that moment.
2: Sure. So, this was a lesson uh, that is sometimes talked about in world history courses as the age of anxiety and it refers to the interwar period between World War I and World War Two, And kind of the stereotypical presentation when we look at Weimar Germany is about hyperinflation and families carting wheelbarrows of money uh, to the store to buy a loaf of bread of that sort of thing and the students had presented this model lesson in in a pretty exemplary way in terms of the content all of the elements of the lesson were fine but as i was sitting observing it i noticed that the rest of the students participating in it just didn't really click with it and and i felt like something was missing and what struck me was that even even though the title implies a feeling of emotion, a, a sense of anxiety, the students had presented the topic in a very kind of cold analytical way that didn't tap into the sense of anxiety that people at the time must have felt.
0: And so what exactly could they have done in that moment to, to maybe tap into that emotion in your opinion?
2: So they addressed some primary sources, which is good instructional practice, but I think there was an opportunity for them to explicitly ask students in the classroom some questions about those texts that would have drawn out the emotions that were implicit in in the texts and and ask students to do a little bit of inference making about what emotions were implied in those texts and why people of the time, why historical actors might have been feeling those particular emotions. And the real punchline of the lesson was about the rise of extremist movements, the rise of totalitarianism. And so the real tie-in would be how feelings of vulnerability and insecurity help to fuel movements that, totalitarian movements like Nazism that promise extraordinary protections to people in ways that appealing to them in in extraordinary circumstances where otherwise they they might not be drawn to such a movement.
0: So this instance, I guess, really got you thinking. Now, do you work with students who are going to become educators in the future? Is this the the group that you're working with?
2: Yes. My students are all credential students. So they're post-baccalaureate and they're all headed into uh, jobs in teaching. And I typically teach them before they have done their clinical practice or or what we used to call student teaching. So they're doing coursework, but not yet in the classroom in a significant way. So,
0: so if I understand it right, you start thinking about this, and then you start even doing some more research and, and looking at what experts say about emotion and in history and education, and that's kind of how you you came to this this article that that you penned. And you you in it you say the last two decades in education they have really focused on cognition. Is that correct? What, what do you mean by that?
2: Yes. So in history education, in particular, the the buzzword for at least a decade, maybe a bit longer, has been historical thinking. And I've been deeply influenced by that myself. Back when I was a high school classroom teacher, uh, Sam Weinberg from Stanford, when his book, Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts came out, that was really a a significant shift for me in the way I thought about teaching. And so historical thinking has been a really prominent way of addressing the nature of the task for us as history teachers. Uh, You know, a common lament is that By adults and current high school students alike, that teaching that history is often simply about factual content and uh, recalling facts and that sort of thing. And the historical thinking movement has really been an effort to engage students in deeper processes of reflection and analysis, which includes a lot of analysis of primary sources and reflecting on topics like cause and effect and significance and change over time and all of those sorts of things. So that's really been the dominant nature of the field for the last decade or two. And as I said, I, I've been really influenced by that, and I think it's really important. Uh, but what struck me was, as I was continuing to do all this reading on the role of emotion, that a real strong attention to cognition might have meant that we have thrown the baby out with the bathwater a bit.
0: And so you you cite... And I may not say her name correctly, but I think it's Mary Helen and Mordino Yang. Correct. And, and there was a quote in there.
2: Um, she says, it is literally neurobiologically impossible to build memories, engage complex thoughts, or make meaningful decisions without emotion.
0: And, and that one really struck me because I feel like that's the way I learn. I feel like if I if I don't have this, you know, meaningful emotion attached to something, it, it doesn't stick in my brain. Would you, Would you feel the same?
2: Part of what struck me and and got me thinking about this was my own connection to my discipline that, you know, I went into teaching both as a high school teacher and now as a college faculty member in part because I feel really passionate about the subject. I feel uh, deeply alive when I'm studying something that I find really interesting. And I think I mentioned in the article as well The fact that a recent study of effective teachers indicated that joyfulness in teaching is is one of the key factors of success. And so part of what I was reflecting on was that my own connection and passion with teaching suggests that, just as you said, that we we do have to have meaningful connections. We have to have some sense of significance and intrigue and curiosity to really pursue the learning that's required when, when learning sometimes becomes challenging.
0: You you also mentioned that, um, I guess, a lot of teachers use Ken Burns' uh, Civil War documentary as a way to connect emotion to the Civil War in the classroom. And and I personally have never seen that particular one, but I have watched a lot of Ken Burns documentaries, and, and they are amazing. They, they bring that emotion in there. Um, I mean, what are some other ways um, teachers could be bringing emotion
2: into their history lessons? Right. So, I think part of... Part of what I was suggesting in the article was the way that uh, when we start a unit of instruction, uh, that is a, a larger sequence of instruction, I think we have to set the tone for why instruction matters, why this topic is really important. And we there's a lot of research about use of essential questions and uh, sort of conveying to students the significance of the topic. But I think one way to do that is through something that taps into students' emotions. And a short film segment can be a way of doing that. And and asking students some kind of hook question, this is a pretty standard practice, but one that taps into emotions and and then teases that out a little bit more can be a way to help students recognize that that this topic is really a crucial topic, and that there's that there's something at stake. And uh, as I said before, we we use a lot of primary sources in history education, and, and we have done so in the last uh, generation or so. But I think teasing out primary sources that have emotion implicit in it, and noting that, and trying to explore a little bit the subjective experiences of those who who wrote the primary sources can be a way of drawing that out as well.
0: In the world that we live in where you know, like you said at the beginning, we we're, we're teaching dates sometimes, and and you know significant events, and try to to put that in our memory. But we live in a world where I can hit a button on the side of my phone and ask Siri, you know, when the Civil War was or when Columbus discovered the Americas. That all that type of information doesn't seem as important as maybe. Having empathy for what was happening in history at that time. Am, am I on the right path? There is
2: that kind of what you're saying. Well, I do think that uh, your your point is absolutely correct. That basic factual information is really easily accessible. So, uh, providing facts as the as the basic justification for our existence as history teachers is is pretty tough in this age. And and I do think those those efforts at critical thinking and deeper connection are are really important and and empathy is a part of that. Now, I will say I wrote an article a number of years back now about the importance of some amount of memorization because I do think without a basic kind of historical framework, it is really difficult to look up every fact and every piece of information. So, I do think a basic chronology is helpful. But your larger point is, is right on, I think, that uh, that critical thinking and making connections and understanding significance; those are really the heart of the discipline, and what what helps it transfer in terms of student success in college and and in the workforce.
0: You say something here that I found um, interesting. You say the teacher should not be shy about like showing their own curiosity, enthusiasm, outrage or even grief about like pivotal historical moments. And, and what would, would you say to the the teacher that might respond? Well, you know, almost like a, a news person, you don't want to offer your emotional feelings about a historical event because of maybe political concerns and so forth.
2: Yeah, I do think uh, there are, there are reasons to be cautious about, about expressions of emotion. I don't think teachers should always express or engage their own emotion. Um, I think what I'm trying to press on is, is a little bit of a pendulum swing. I, I think at least in my own experience as a teacher for a long time, I felt like I was supposed to be, and I'm not sure who taught me this, or I just absorbed it somehow, but I felt like I was supposed to be emotionally neutral all the time. And so there was a lot of passion, enthusiasm, curiosity, and so forth, that I didn't really express. And when I started moving into teaching that way, even when I was a high school teacher, I felt like it really helped draw my students in more. And I think that's easier and safer to do with curiosity and enthusiasm. I do think uh, outrage and grief need to be managed more carefully. But I think if you're teaching about something like a genocide, and and there isn't some sense of weightiness that you convey as a teacher or some sense of, uh, of sadness about that. Uh, there does feel like a disconnect between the topic and the stance that you're taking toward the topic. Uh, I did a lot of workshops when I was working at Long Beach State for a while with, uh, with someone who was in the Jewish Studies program. And he routinely taught on the Holocaust. And he talked about what an emotionally draining experience it was for him all the time because he couldn't teach the subject without being emotionally engaged in it. And it it took a toll on him, but it was also essential to the way that his students then engaged in the topic.
0: Yeah, I definitely could understand that. The um, I'm going to try a little exercise and I'm kind of putting you on the spot because I don't even think any of this is in the article. But I just want to try the exercise of let's pick like a common topic that's taught in a history class and maybe kind of dive into how we could pull emotion out of that topic. So like, just just to say like the signing of the Declaration of Independence, how could you make that more emotional?
2: Well, I think you'd probably have to move beyond just the signers in the room, you'd need to find some primary sources that address the ways that everyday Americans responded to, uh, to the event. And so there's, there's all kinds of archival resources on newspapers from the era that would help would help students connect with some of the sense of enthusiasm. And I think on the reverse side, some of the anxiety that other Americans felt as well, Americans weren't universally enthusiastic about revolution. And I think the ambivalence of both enthusiasm and caution would help students recognize that there were there were pretty heavy stakes involved in declaring revolution in breaking away from the most powerful nation on earth at the time. And so I think teasing that out a little bit would help students recognize that this wasn't just you know a document that they sometimes have to memorize the beginning to, but it was a, a declaration of rebellion that, uh, that had implications that had it failed, uh, people might well have hanged for it, as Benjamin Franklin suggested.
0: Well, Dr. Newman, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us about it, about this. Um, If somebody wants to keep up with you, uh, do you like Mm -hmm. blog or are you on Twitter or anywhere? I
2: am not good about those things. I've been nudged to do that, (laughs) but I haven't made the jump.
0: That's fine. That's fine. Well, again, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us on class dismissed today. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. All right. First question. If students could only go to
2: school for one subject, which subject should it be? Well, that deck seems a little bit stacked. I have to say history education, right? So I I think that in the last few years uh, with the coming of Common Core, there's been a real strong push for English and math. And I, I wouldn't deny the centrality of those topics at all. But I do think that history education gives you a lot of opportunities to teach students literacy in a history-specific context, while at the same time giving students the tools for critical thinking and some understanding of civic awareness and civic commitments, and a sense of shared identity of uh, not only how we came to be as a nation, but also when we think about world history, uh, who we are as, as a people on planet Earth.
0: What are we not teaching
2: in school that we should be teaching? Well, I think as much as I've pushed the element of emotion, I think critical thinking more generally, at least when it comes to, um, to history, I think remains a challenging topic. And, and within that, I would say the notion of significance, which is the question that students often implicitly ask, which is why should we bother to learn this? And I've encouraged my students when they go out into classrooms to anticipate that, that question and be ready to answer it, to recognize that there should always be a good answer for that, uh, that that asking why a topic matters is really important and and being able to dig into a good answer is is part of what teachers should do.
0: What does every child deserve?
2: I think every child deserves a rich, challenging education that provides uh, literacy and the critical thinking skills to be successful and to have options to be able to go to college or if they choose not to go to college, to be successful in a career. I think that's a matter of equity. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Well, so along those lines, I think the uh, the, the lower literacy levels of many students, many students come in with uh, reading several grade levels behind and to engage students in the kinds of rich and rigorous texts and conversations we want to have. We often have to uh, actively develop their literacy skills while we teach content.
0: What's the best gift to give an educator?
2: (laughs) A gift card to Amazon so they can keep reading and learning themselves. Which teacher changed your life? Uh, I had had the good fortune to have a number of, of fantastic teachers when I was, particularly when I was in high school. But I would say my senior year English teacher really changed my life in terms of his own passion for the subject and the way that he engaged his students in conversation where he had a measure of respect for them, where he he treated them, us, where he treated us as conversation partners in a meaningful discussion about various texts and films and that sort of thing. And that was really contagious.
0: And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. Pen. All right, Dr. Dave Newman, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about emotion in uh, history education. Uh, and uh, hopefully, uh, we can talk again soon. Thanks very much. Again, I appreciate you having me on. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember, you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at dismiss.